This morning, I wanted to bring to you a familiar passage that many of you, I think, probably have memorized. And because of its familiarity, sometimes familiarity not necessarily breeds content, but maybe breeds uh, a lack of excitement, lack of enthusiasm when something's so familiar to us. But I want to read this morning Psalm 23. And I want to exposit this passage for us this morning and hopefully bring a little more light, a little bit more character, a little bit more color to this, not for the sake of knowledge. I think it's very easy sometimes to get up here in a pulpit, in a place of teaching, and demonstrate how much knowledge I have that I give to you or that anyone stands up and can pass on to you and that you'll look at whoever is standing there, whether that's me or someone else, and say, wow, that person has so much knowledge of the Bible. And yet my heart is, and my heart's desire is for anyone who would get up here, that our desire would be that you would be impacted by the Holy Spirit and by his word with a desire to know our God more, to love him more, and that you would be transformed, that your mind would be renewed, that your desire would be to love our God more every day. Because a mere transfer of knowledge, the Bible says that knowledge puffs up. And knowledge has a way for us to turn it into a tool that is meant to chisel our own heart into a hammer to pound on others. And so this morning, as we look at this passage together, and as I've spent time thinking this week about it, as I've spent time studying, I pray together that our hearts would be moved towards God. That we'd be transformed in a people, into a people who love God more than we did at the end 45 minutes ago. So let's read this together. Psalm 23, a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I may walk through a valley of a shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they give me comfort. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil My cup, it overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Richard Burton, you probably don't recognize that name, but he was an old English actor, acted in movies and one day he went and he visited his old parish his old church that he grew up in as a child and people were shaking his hands and really excited that he was there and his old parishioner his his reverend welcomed him and said Richard please if you would recite for us Psalm 23 that I taught you as a child if you still remember it. And he said, oh, I, I still remember it. But Reverend, I'll only do it on one condition. If after I recite it, you come up after me and exposit it. So he goes up 
to the stage and as a trained actor, he uses all of his eloquence and his charisma and he recites from his heart Psalm 23. And at the end, everybody stands up and gives an ovation. Well's pastor now who is an old man, feeble, grainy voice, kind of like mine, gets up from his wheelchair, goes to the pulpit, and he recites Psalm 23. And it's dead quiet. And Richard Burton stands up and he wipes his eyes and he says, I know that psalm, but my pastor knows the shepherd. The question this morning is, do you know the shepherd? Do you know this God that David speaks of in a very intimate way? We look at verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. He could have said the Lord is a shepherd. The Lord is the good shepherd. The Lord is the great shepherd. All of those would have been true. But he chooses to start off this psalm as the Lord is my shepherd. David, at this time of writing, he's probably king at this point. He's probably been in the throne for a while. And he's looking backwards at his life. And this is an ode to the God who has been with him since he was a boy in the field as a shepherd. David knows exactly what it's like to be a shepherd. He spent so many days and so many nights with his sheep, among them, knowing them, learning them, watching them, protecting them. We have the stories of the ruddy young man who was handsome and fair, who spent days watching his sheep, directing them to streams, directing them to green pastures, fighting lions and bears with his bare hand and his slingshot, fending off wolves who would try to attack his sheep and take them off one by one. This is not a man who is unfamiliar, although he's king, he still knows exactly what it is like to be a shepherd, to love stinky, sweaty, dumb sheep. I don't know if you've ever dealt with sheep, but they're not smart. This is true historically. Even though sheep have been genetically modified since then, bred, they're still not smart. If you go on the internet, there is a video of a sheep that's got itself stuck into a ditch in a big hole, and they work really hard, and they pull it out, and they let the sheep go, and he takes off, and he jumps right back into the same hole. That is a sheep. And when they're unsheared, they are smelly and stinky. I didn't grow up with many sheep, but I did grow up around dairy farms, a lot of dairy farms. Most of my friends growing up had dairy farms. I grew up in a community of Dutch dairy farmers down in Southern California. If you didn't know this, there are a lot of, or at least there used to be a lot of dairy farms down there. And my school, in fact, the school I went from elementary, junior high through high school was built on, and there were two separate campuses, but both of them were built on former dairy farms. And when it would rain or when it would get cold and the mist would rise up, so would rise up that dairy smell. To me, I love that smell. It feels like home. Even though I didn't live on a dairy, I spent good six, seven, eight hours a day on an old dairy farm. And so that smell to me is home. And most of my friends took care of cattle, dairy cattle. And many of them had goats and sheep as well. And as my friends grew up, they would raise these. And so I became very familiar with the pastoral life and farm animals are stinky and they're sweaty and they don't always do what they're told. But my friends also cared very much for their animals. 
When my friends were small in an elementary school, they were always, often, I shouldn't say always, but often many of them were given a brand new baby calf that sometimes they would actually help birth. I did it one time and one time only. That was the last time I ever birthed the calf. I've rarely been sicker than after I helped birth the calf. It was one of the grossest experiences that I've ever had. I won't go into the details, but there was, yes, a lot of junk in my eyes and in my mouth and in my ears and in my hair. But they would raise these calves until they were ready to be sold off as either dairy calves or beef calves. And they loved these animals and they would name them and they would care for them and they would protect them and they would give them vitamins. This is the same intimate knowledge that the king of Israel has, that David has, and he looks back. Even when David fell into deep sin, when he should say walked into it because he didn't really just fall and stumble into sin, he became lazy and he sat up on his roof when the kings were supposed to be going off to war and he just sent his army out and said, no, nah, I'm just going to relax. I've done this before. And he notices Bathsheba up on her rooftop with the palace being higher. He could see down on all the roofs and he sees Bathsheba bathing and he says, who's that beautiful woman? Rather than looking away, he continues to stare at her and calls her in and commits adultery with her and then murders her husband when she becomes pregnant. When all this happens, what parable does Nathan come with? That of man who loves his one baby lamb. The parable of a shepherd with one lamb. And when the rich man comes and takes away that one lamb and slaughters it for his feast rather than taking from his own lambs, David rises up with angry justice and says, Who is this man? And what does Nathan say to him? Oh, King David, you are that man. This is a king with a shepherd's heart. And as he looks back and he thinks about who God has been in his life throughout the years, both the good times and the hard times, he can't help but pour out love to this God, this intimate God that was very different from the gods of the ancient Near East. The gods of the other peoples that surrounded Israel, those weren't personal gods. Those were gods with bodies of a man and heads of a fish. Those are angry gods that demanded ch child sacrifices where you would take your children, your babies, and throw them into the fire. These were the gods that demanded cutting and screaming and yelling and blood. And even then, those gods were of nothing. These were a people that made gods that were very much like themselves, but were unlike them and didn't want to be near them unless you appeased them. But our God is very different. Our God is an intimate God. And it's amazing that the God of the universe would allow himself in his own word to be compared to a shepherd for our sake. That God would allow himself to be condescended down, to be analogized as such a thing as a shepherd around stinky, dumb sheep. And then later, in the flesh, he would condescend. And again, he would come down to a stinky, sweaty people who were a people without a shepherd, and he would weep over them for that. He would weep that they were a people without a shepherd, and he would condescend even further to be mocked and beaten and bruised and hung on a cross to die for those people. So we look at David who says, the Lord is my shepherd. He writes this and he puts on display the relationship that he has with his God. The same relationship that every person, if he is in Christ, he has with the creator of the universe. That God is my shepherd. 
He's your shepherd. It's a very personal relationship, wholly different, as I said, than the people around them have with their false gods. He's a shepherd to me. He cares for me. He watches over me and he preserves me. As David felt about his sheep, he looks to his God and says that, my God does all these things for me. I shall not want. David looks at his God and he highlights the relationship that he has with his God. Jesus says in John 10, 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for my sheep. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, you have a very, very personal relationship with your God. If you don't know him, you don't have any relationship with the shepherd. He still cares for you. He still loves you. But he doesn't know you or you don't know him. Matthew 7 makes that very clear. Even if you're here today, even if you're carrying out all the acts of righteousness that you think will help out, but you don't have a relationship with Jesus, he does not know you. Matthew 7 22 says, many will come to me on that day, on the day of judgment, and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things? Didn't we evangelize in your name? Didn't we do those miracles in your name? And he says, away with you. I don't know you. That verse is impressed on my heart because I became saved through that verse as a teenager. Yes, I prayed a prayer, and I told you about that when I remembered it in Sunday school, when my Sunday school teacher asked me if I wanted to pray that prayer, but it I didn't understand my sin at the time. I didn't understand the need for transformation. I didn't understand that God wasn't calling me just to do what's right and stay away from what's wrong. It wasn't necessarily about that. I did those things because I loved Jesus. But at the time, I didn't love Jesus. I knew a lot about him. I knew who he was. I had this type of love for him, but it wasn't a relational love. What David is describing here is a very close and intimate relational love. I love all of you, but I don't love you the way I love my wife. The kids in this church, I love them and would protect them, but I don't love you guys the way I love my children. There's a relationship, an intimacy that if you are in Christ, God loves you in that way. The Lord is my shepherd. Is he your shepherd? He says, I shall not want. David right here is talking about provision and, and satisfaction. That our God who loves us provides for all of our needs. David doesn't want for anything that he needs. Now, God is not a cosmic candy machine. He's not a cosmic vending machine. As the prosperity preachers like to preach, that if you just ask, God will give it to you. You don't have because you don't ask. So if you want that mansion, get that mansion, ask for that mansion, and God will give it to you. That's not what David is saying. The prosperity gospel is wrong. But God will provide for every single one of your needs. He will take care of you. He will provide for you. The Bible says, I have never seen a child of God go hungry. Matthew 7, 26 says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap or gather into the barns and yet your heavenly father feeds them. How much more does he care about you? Even greater than David and David is saying, my God gives me everything that I need. You are in Christ. God cares for you even more. Because if you're in Christ, 
God loves you through his son even more. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. The good shepherd brings us to rest. Brothers and sisters, I don't know about you, but oftentimes towards the end of the year, I'm tired. And then we ramp it up with a bunch of parties (laughs) that you're either participating in or running or sometimes both. (laughs) So at the end of a long year, let's make it even longer. (laughs) And they're fun and they're enjoyable and you're with friends and family and there's a lot of cooking going on and baking and that's fun and doing traditions and doing things. And yet, I don't know about you, but I'm tired. (laughs) And even in our church, we've had a long year. We're winding down, moving towards a new year and a new opportunity to see how our God is going to provide for us. As he stated in the previous verse, we shall not want. But brothers and sisters, we can always rest in our God who loves us and the great shepherd who leads us to green pastures. Sometimes I drive by farms or where there's cattle or there's goats or there's sheep and the grass is brown. I go, I wonder what they're eating. Maybe they do like that. But I guarantee they like green pastures more and green grass more. See, our God doesn't just bring us to rest in a field. It's a field of green pastures. He satisfies us with good things. He brings us rest. Ezekiel 34, 13 through 14 says this, and I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and I will bring them into their own land and I will feed them on the mountains of the country and I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land and they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. Jesus says, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find your rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I think sometimes there's a need for us to be hit right between our eyes with Scripture and to be confronted by our sin to be confronted by our own selfishness and our own pride and our arrogance, but there's also a time to be encouraged to know that your God brings you to a place of rest, that he is gentle and lowly and he calls to you to lay your burden on him. To stop, to cease from being anxious and trying to work it all out and to just rest in our shepherd who loves you and cares for you. We're always trying to figure out how do we, where do we go and how do we get there? I'm a planner. I like to plan. I like to think through. I like to think through the details. But sometimes you just need to stop and rest in the Lord. He makes me lie down. In green pastures, he leads me beside still waters. Our God gives us refreshment. They're quiet waters. They're not fast waters where you have to look down and make sure you don't get swept away by the current. And it's clean water. It's moving. It's not stagnant water. Our God loves us so much that he brings us to green pastures and fresh, slow-moving, peaceful waters. In verse 3, he restores my soul. He brings us healing. Psalm 19 Verse 7 says this. The law of the Lord is perfect, 
reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The Lord gives us his word that we can rest in it. We can find truth. We can find wisdom. We can find restoration for our souls. Be renewed in your mind. Be transformed by the word. That's why we come here every week. I would encourage you this. That you don't gain extra points by spending time with the Lord and his word every day. You don't better your relationship with him because he sees you doing that and goes, oh, I like them more. They get extra points. But I will tell you this, your relationship with God will be better because you will know him more. You will find rest in him more. You will find new ways that he loves you. You will find new ways that he protects you, that he cares for you, that he loves you. If you are spending time with the Lord in his word and in prayer, The Lord restores our souls through his word. And he leads us in paths of righteousness. He gives us guidance. Psalm 119, 105 says, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. We oftentimes don't know which next step to take. I've been there. Goodness, my life is filled with what do I do next? What college do I go to? What vocation should I have? I went to college and I wanted to be a lawyer. But while I was in college, I took Bible classes. I'm like, these are great. I love learning about God's word. And oftentimes skills of a lawyer are very similar to skills of a pastor. Being able to think on your feet, being able to speak, being able to exposit the law and pull out how it applies to a life or a situation. And so... Somewhere along the line, people started encouraging me and saying, I think you're called to ministry. So I thought, well, if I'm called to ministry, then I should probably do an internship and find out. And I did an internship. And I was under a youth pastor who I still very much love and appreciate, who had us preach every week. And there was two of us. And we would trade off in different youth ministries. And then we would preach in the large service. And I really enjoyed it. I go, well, I enjoyed it. I love God's word. I love his people. I should be a pastor. But I never felt really comfortable with full-time vocational pastoring. But then I graduated and go, well, I think I should be a pastor. But no church was calling me to be their youth pastor. And so I prayed about it. And all of a sudden, I got a phone call. And there was this church in Lancaster, California that said, you should come up and we want to interview you because you preached at another church up here in their youth group and you got a great recommendation from them. So I go, okay, well, this is the Lord's sign. They go, okay, I've been up to Lancaster. I worked at a church in there in the youth ministry for a semester or two. I preached at this church. I know exactly what it's like. It's the high desert. And I think people throw that modifier in their high desert to take away from the desert part. It's a desert. It's just south of the Mojave Desert and bleeds into it. And... I'm like, okay, I'll apply. And then at the same time, I got this email out of the blue where a church was asking me to be their youth pastor too. And this church was in Hawaii. So I go, okay, I've got these two. So I went up and I interviewed with the pastor at this church in Lancaster. And I knew the pastor out in Hawaii. And it was a great church and a beautiful side of the island. And I prayed about it and... I felt like the Lord was directing me to the church in the desert. I have nothing audible to go to, but I did not want to go there. (laughs) I wanted to go to the church in Hawaii. (laughs) The desert or a paradise. (laughs) And I remember I prayed and I prayed and I just could not shake the feeling. And I felt like that pastor, I could serve with him and the Lord was leading through the conversations we had, and so I took that job. And I remember my first week, I drove out to the middle of the desert near the prison that's out there in the desert, not too far from our church, and I wept bitterly. <laughs> I was so sad that I had to choose the desert over Hawaii. <laughs> but I knew the Lord was leading me there. 
And in that three years that I was at that church, I learned to love the church even more. I had hard times, and I had to confront some very serious sin, and there was even, well, I felt like demonic oppression because the sin that I was dealing with and other people and confronting and adults, I was 20 years old, and calling out adults for adulterous things that they were doing and calling out adults for sin that was very deep and, and very complicated, it renewed my love for the church. And later on, as I went into other careers, I, I pursued those and I spent about four or five years trying to become a police officer and did stuff part-time as a reserve and I spent three years applying and working out and getting ready for the Secret Service and I applied on a whim and didn't think they would take me and I got through halfway and you had to take this math test and it's competitive and I walk into this room and it's just me and this other guy and it's a math test and I had a week to study because they lost my letter and I look over and that guy's Korean and I go there's no way I'm going to pass this test. <laughs> and so it kind of relaxed me and I sat there and I took that test and a couple weeks later I got a phone call saying that I passed and then I was on to the next level and the next level and there's about a year and a half process of this whole application that took place and I got my final letter saying you're pre-approved, you've got this job if you want it, you got one more background thing to pass which I had passed background tests so it was not going to be a problem and I had one final interview with the agent in charge and I went to, I was about to go there and I had this intern come to me in my office and I was working at Masters at the time and she sits down she goes, Pete, do you think this is what God wants you to do with the rest of your life? And I'm like, I thought he did. <laughs> I just spent four years like working up to this. And so I go, I, th I think so. And she goes, okay. I just thought I'd ask the question. And then later that day, I was talking to someone, and they asked me that same question. <laughs> and kind of like today, I had a cold, and so I took some medicine, and I didn't sleep very well, and I was wrestling through. And sometimes when you get colds, you kind of have like weird feverish thinking. And I kept thinking about that all night, and I couldn't sleep. So I went to the interview. And I sat down, I said, sorry, I'm not feeling very well. He's like, that's fine. You know, I just got a couple of questions to ask. This is really a formality, but the first question I have to ask you is, are you sure this is what you're supposed to be doing with your life? And I just sat there and I go, I don't know. <laughs> and he goes, well, you need to know because you're going to be in these protection details and, and you're going to be missing holidays and birthdays and special occasions and Christmases and you're going to have to move and you need to be absolutely sure that this is what you want to do. And usually by the time we get to this point, like it's just a formality, but I'm going to give you 24 hours and you need to call me back tomorrow and let me know. And I remember I got on the freeway in LA and I called and I called my dad and I just cried. He goes, you know what, son? This may not be what you're supposed to do. And I called back the next day and it was like, I wasn't speaking, but I remember talking to him saying, I can't do this. Thank you for your time. And he was a little frustrated. I could hear it in his voice, but I gave it up and I cried. I go, what am I supposed to do now? And I had a friend who was a judge and he said, you know what? I think you're supposed to go to law school. So I said, well, I'll apply. If I get good enough grades, I don't want to like pay a whole bunch more for law school then I'll get a scholarship and I'll get in. And I remember taking that test and studying for a while and I passed the test. And I did well enough to get a little bit of scholarship and I went to law school and so on and so forth. Even coming here, I walked out of the exam to be a stockbroker going, there is no way I passed that test. It was a joke. I like guessed on the last 10 questions. They asked me all these like complicated algebra questions and no calculator and just a pencil. And a week later, got a call that I had passed. And then the tests when we got here, where I was this close to not passing, and I passed them, and we're still here. The Lord gives us guidance. 
His word is a lamp unto my feet. And I remember all of those times going to his word and going to prayer and asking for the Lord to guide me. And it was one step at a time. I don't know what the next step in our life is going to be. I do know that I want God to guide me and my family. I want God to guide us in this church. I don't want to direct our church You shouldn't want to direct our church. You should want our God to lead us by the light of his word that the lamp would be onto our feet taking the next step in faith. And it is faith because the step in front of us is dark. That's why we need the lamp of his word to guide us and his Holy Spirit working in congruence with his word to give us guidance. Our good shepherd is our guide. He leads us to paths of righteousness. But here's the crux of this passage. For his name's sake. This was mind-blowing to me in college. This idea right here that my walk of faith, that my Christianity was not about me just doing what's right or wrong. It's not about obedience necessarily. I throw that necessarily in because I'm going to circle back to that. My Christian faith is about God's glory. But you look back on the last couple of verses and it's about our good. How do those two go together? They are in perfect unity. If you are loving your God and doing what he says because you love him, Our good and God's glory work together. Let me say that again. Our good and God's glory work in perfect unison. This is our purpose. This is why we are here. For God's glory. For his name's sake. Jonathan Edwards. I don't know if you're familiar with that name. But he was a young theologian went to Harvard, excuse me, Princeton, Princeton. Actually, he went to Harvard and then became the president of Princeton. But he went to Harvard when he was 13 years old. And back then, Harvard was was training vocational pastors. And then he became a pastor in New England and a missionary to the Native Americans that were there in that area. But when he was a young man, he wrote out a number of resolutions fighting, hungering for God and his righteousness. And his resolution number 22 says this, resolved to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can. With all the power, might, vigor, and vehemence, yea, violence I am capable of or can bring myself to exert in any way that can be thought of. What does that mean? It means he's going to do everything that he can to obtain happiness for himself and the other world. And that that is not in opposition to God's glory. When your life is about God's glory, your happiness flows from that. What I'm not saying is that you can't experience some sense of happiness if you're not pursuing the Lord. You can, but it's fleeting. It's unsatisfying. It doesn't last, and it won't be forever. Your feelings, your emotions, when you pursue them for your own benefit apart from God's glory, they will wind up ultimately hurting you. As I look at my children and I tell them not to do things or to do things, it's for their own good. It's not because I want to be a cosmic killjoy. There are times when I do tell my children, don't do that. And then I think about it, I go, what's my reasoning? Why don't I want them to do that? Is it just to make my life more comfortable, easier? And I have to evaluate that. 
Sometimes I don't want my boys to do things because I think it's dangerous and I don't want them to hurt themselves and then I have to be fearful and take them to the hospital and I have to evaluate them and go, they're boys. They need to do dangerous things carefully. (laughs) They do. And I have to go, you know what? Go ahead and do that. But watch out for this and this and this. I want to train them to do dangerous things carefully. I mean, I'm in the garage cutting with a saw that spins on a circle that can kill me, cut my fingers off. I've never had a shop teacher that wasn't missing a finger, okay? Every shop teacher that I've ever had was missing at least one finger. When I went to college, there was a guy who worked in student life, and we used to make fun of him because he would say, there's five things, and I said, well, it's four and a half, He'd been a shop teacher. You do dangerous things carefully. I want us to pursue our happiness, but in God. We've learned from the Bible, and then over and over again it says, that God's interest is to magnify the fullness of his glory by spilling over in mercy to us, to us sinners. We desperately need him. And when we pursue God out of our desperation, he is most magnified in that. He is most glorified in that. And because of that, the pursuit of our own interest and our own happiness, even if it costs us our lives, it's never above God's interest and God's happiness and God's glory. But it's always in God's glory. Not above it, but in it. One of the most precious truths in Scripture is that God's greatest interest is to glorify the wealth of his grace by making sinners whole and happy in him. In him. And when we humble ourselves like little children and we don't strive for self-sufficiency, but we run happily into the joy of our Father's embrace. The glory of his grace is magnified and the longing of our souls is satisfied and our interest in his glory become one. He leads us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Verse four, and even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. There's a turn there from this peaceful, pastoral care and comfort to a valley of shadow of death. It's kind of disruptive. But as David looks back, he's saying, your life is not gonna always be peaceful rest. There's gonna be times of disruption and fear and scary situations. But guess what, brothers and sisters? Circumstances do not change the steadfastness of our heart because our shepherd is still the same. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death where there is testing and there's trials, you will have hard things. There are hard things in our church right now. Hip replacements, bad kidneys, hurt backs, aches and pains, emotional suffering, depression, fear, anxiety, relational strife. There are all these trials and testing and yet the shepherd says, come to me. You do not have to fear evil. 
because our God offers us protection and we can trust him. Because God is with us, he will never leave us or forsake us. He is faithful and he is present. God is an ever-present help in time of need. Even though you may have a situation that feels like death, even though you may have a situation that is so scary that you feel just despondent and doom, you don't have to fear. Romans 8, the end of the chapter tells us we don't have to fear. We are more than conquerors. That neither life nor death nor angels nor principalities nor things above or things below can ever separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. If you are in Christ, you are in Christ forever. As David will remind us at the end of this verse. At the end of this O to God. It's not being about God, that this is my God, where he says, the Lord is my shepherd. He's talking about him as, even though he's relational, now he's talking to God. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, God. He turns his attention upward as he worships. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. It's a shepherd's crook and hook. Shepherd carried... A crook, and it could, man, that thing could whip around. And it could knock a wolf on its back. But it could also hook a sheep that's going the wrong direction, either its legs or its neck. It's both protection and guidance. And that staff should bring comfort to you that God is sovereign. Everything is is in his control. You don't have to worry. And you have eternal assurance that if you are in Christ, you will not lose your salvation. That nothing in this world or the world to come can ever cause you to lose your salvation. We couldn't gain it. Why would we be able to lose it by something we're doing? There was two bishops in England, one of them was the former bishop of London during the ascension of Bloody Mary to the throne in 1555. Ridley and Latimer, they were friends. They were arrested at her ascension because they were supporters of Lady Jane Grey, who they wanted her to be the queen and ascend to the throne. And so when Bloody Mary, who was very much a Catholic, came to the throne, she started putting to death any dissenters and any who were evangelical, even in the Anglican church. And Ridley and Latimer were two of these bishops. And so as they came to the throne, as she came to the throne, Latimer was taken first and arrested and Riley was, or the rest was coming soon. And as they were put in the center of London, strapped to a stake, and as the sticks were piled up around them, It stated that Latimer said this to Ridley, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as shall never be put out. You think those men were walking through the valley of the shadow of death? Death was imminent. It was seconds away. And to turn to each other and say, man up, this candle's gonna light a gospel fire in this city. You think the good shepherd was with them at that time? Yes, he was. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. We have such a good shepherd that even when our enemies are surrounding us, 
It's not just a quick meal. It's not just a lunchable. It's not just a quick snack and run. Some trail mix on the trail. It's a banquet laid out before as enemies are around that we have such comfort that our God says, sit down and eat. Don't worry about it. I'll take care of them. David writes this, I think, with a view of looking back when King Saul was chasing him. When he was after him, trying to kill him because he was fearful that David was taking the throne. And he was. That God had taken the anointing off of Saul and put it on David and he chased him into caves and across wildernesses. And David fled and he was fearful. And it was a scary time. I think David looks back and goes, even though your enemies are around you, that you don't have to be fearful because your shepherd cares for you and he lays out for you, even at that moment, choice goods and blessing. And there's hope. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. We're all priests in the house of God. Jesus has made us a kingdom of priests. And you have a calling. You have an anointing. That's what happened with the priests. They received an anointing. And with that anointing, they were called to go out. It's that gospel call to go out and to proclaim the gospel of the good shepherd that you have been cared for, that you have been loved, that you have been protected, that you can trust a God who will give you guidance and light your path. The world is dying and they're hurting and they're suffering and they're looking for anything that will help them feel good about themselves. Anything. If I just become the cat that I think I am and take on this persona, then I'll feel good about myself. If I just take on this other gender, which I've always felt a little bent towards, then I'll be okay. If I just pursue wealth, if I just take these drugs, if I just do this thing, it'll make me happy. We have a dying and hurting world that comes to the end and they're dissatisfied. There is more utter depression and suicide in our world right now than there ever has been. In Santa Clarita, the, the town that I just, that I used to live in before we moved to Kentucky, last Monday there was four sheriff, unrelated, four LA sheriffs, deputies or personnel that all killed themselves on the same day, unrelated. People are looking for hope. And we have so much hope that it overflows. My cup overflows so much that we're given. And again, this is not health and wealth because Paul says, I have learned to be content with little and with a lot. Let me ask you this. Are you content with the Lord, what the Lord has given you and your family? Financially? With our church? Or do you always want more? This isn't good enough. And I'm not, not talking about pursuing excellence for God's sake, for his glory, I'm talking about your discontent because something in you, you just want to be known for more. I see this sometimes with preachers and pastors on social media. It seems like their congregation is not good enough for them. They always want more. They want a platform. They want to be heard by people all over the world. Who cares? What God has given you is, should be enough. That's why people pursue adulterous affairs is because what God has given them is not enough. I look at my family, I look at my children, and I have a mission field right there. My children, they are unregenerate sinners. <laughs> Sometimes more so on certain days. It is my job as their dad and Lauren as their mom to train them up in the way of the Lord. It's not promised that they won't go astray, but it's a good pattern, Scripture says. If you train your children up in the way of the Lord, when they are old, they will not depart. That's not necessarily a promise, but it's prescriptive. If you do this, it's likely that this will happen. 
So do it. We even talked this morning about what it means to be faithful parents. My cup overflows. But there are days where I feel discontent with our house or whatever, with my job, so on and so forth, with what we're having for dinner. But when I remember that my God has given this to me, my cup overflows. And surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Now in the future, moving out of the strife and the fear and the scary days, David looks to the future. God pursues us with good things. Goodness supplies our needs. Mercy blots out our sin. That God is so good that he gives us everything that we need, but he also gives us mercy and it blots out our sin. If you are in Christ, you have everything. But not only that, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He gives us security and safety. You cannot lose your salvation. If you truly are in Christ, he will bring you to the end unblemished. We named my son Jude because I love the end of Jude, that he is able to present you before God without spot or blemish. It's a promise. Psalm 27.4 says, One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to inquire in his temple it's not about living in God's house. It's about being where God is. Not just being with the shepherd, not just being, having a relationship with him, but being eternally with him forever. We move from God as transcendent. He is up there, but he cares for us and he loves us to being with him in his house, being there forever and ever. This is our good shepherd. Brothers and sisters, do you know this shepherd? Do you depend on this shepherd? Do you love him? Has he given you everything you need? And because of that, you will be obedient. I said I was going to circle back. What was mind-blowing to me in college is that even though I was raised in the church, even though I was a believer, much of my faith was about doing and not doing. What was paradigm shifting for me is that I wanted to know and love Jesus and from that overflowed the desire to be obedient. Because I realized that what God was telling me to not do and to do was for my own good and my own joy and my own satisfaction. He wasn't keeping me from good and fun things. He was keeping me away from things that ultimately were not good and fun and bringing me to green pastures and bringing me to still waters, and bringing me to a table that's laid before my enemies, and bringing me to a cup that overflows, not those empty trash. It was a paper cup that I was after, a styrofoam cup with a hole in it that multiple other people had drank out of, and mud pies in a slum. All those things were deficient, and God was saying, no, don't drink that, don't eat that, don't do that. I've got so much better for you. This is what I offer you because I love you because you are my sheep and I am your shepherd and all I want for you is good. And in that, as long as you're dependent on me and you give me the glory and you thank me, that's all I ask. This is our good shepherd, brothers and sisters. He loves us. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, God. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. 
You know, anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Our good shepherd, we love you because you first loved us. We were at war with you. We were at enmity with you. And yet, while we were at war with you, Christ died for us. The shepherd laid down his life for his sheep. And Lord, I pray for anyone in here who does not know you as their good shepherd that their heart would be ravaging in them right now. The desire of their pride and arrogance to just hold out. That the conviction in their heart would give up and give in to the call that the Holy Spirit is making for them to repent and to have a relationship with the good shepherd who loves them. Father, thank you for loving us. May we be encouraged. May we walk away from this resting in you, that you give us comfort, that you give us healing, that we can trust you, that you guide our paths, that you lay before us a bountiful banquet and our cup overflows. And not only that, Father, but you give us Christ. All of this in Christ too. And we will dwell with you forever. In that, Lord, we say amen.